Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Literacy View. We have another special show for you today. Very exciting. We are going to be talking about comprehension, and we're going to be discussing two articles. One is by Natalie Wexler, and it is called New Study Suggests Standardized Reading Tests Miss a Lot of Learning, and that is in Forbes. And the other article is by Nate the Great Joseph, and it is called What's Better for Reading Comprehension? strategy or content knowledge instruction. And uh, that is a meta-analysis. So we invited Dr. Leslie Laud on because she is the leader, the founder of SRSD, think SRSD, Self-Regulated Strategy Development for Reading and Writing. She is a writer, a researcher, and is a leader in the area of the science of writing instruction. And we are so pleased to have her on because she does a lot of work in this area, both in reading and writing, and she does professional development. And I thought it was important to get a different view because, you know, when we, you know, we follow social media, we seem to get a very narrow view from people who um, certainly have a lot to say and important things to say. But I wanted to widen the discussion a bit. And I thought that, you know, your views and your knowledge would be a wonderful addition for tonight's episode. So I'm going to start actually with something right from Natalie Wexler's article. And it is on the last page of her article where she said, does it make sense to measure progress using tests that focus on supposed comprehension skills, knowing they may fail to capture actual learning? Even more crucially, should we continue to attach high stakes to tests that mislead educators into thinking knowledge is irrelevant to comprehension? And so I'm focusing on those two questions, Leslie, because um, after reading the article, I'm going to sum it up for our viewers, that basically um, Natalie is saying that, um, you know, background knowledge is very important. She has said this numerous times, but this time she was really focused on the standardized tests that do not reflect um, gains from content knowledge instruction. And, you know, she has um, some very good points in here that I do want to bring up, but I'd like to start with your view on some of those questions that she brought up in the article. What are some of your thoughts about that? Well, for that section, a couple of thoughts come to mind. Um, <laughs> Um, I think it's a good point. 
she's raising a really important point about the fact that these tests are not measuring knowledge. And it is a really interesting theoretical question, but it's theory. It's not the real world that we live in today. Could this issue in a policy change that could come to our schools in the future? It's possible. It would probably take many years for the tests to change. And maybe she's starting something that that could take hold in the schools down the road. But right now, the way that the tests are working, um, it's true that they're not measuring knowledge. And I think we have to be careful about the real world feet on the ground schools versus interesting theories, because the worry is that people will then look at this theory, try to implement it in their schools, expect to see gains in ELA, not achieve those gains, because I'll get into it a little bit more later about how um, raising knowledge has not translated over to the distal gains that these tests measure. So for a lot of schools, these tests are high stakes. Principals are evaluated on them. Children need to pass them. Schools are evaluated. Schools are closed. You know, there are very high stakes repercussions attached. And to go and say, well, the test should change and then we should be teaching differently, building knowledge is a little precarious. Now, I do want to come back later, and I'm sure we will, to the importance of building knowledge. But let's not put a myth out there that by building knowledge, we'll see gains on the ALA tests because we haven't. Okay. So now, um, Judy, we've had both Natalie Wexler on and we've had Nate Joseph on. And the other article is Nate's article. And he did a meta-analysis. And he pretty much is saying what um, Leslie just said, Dr. Leslie Law just said, that um, from what he could see, that the only um, benefits that there are with this content knowledge curriculum is when it's specific to the text being used. That if you are going to um, give background knowledge, it's specific to what is being read that will help improve um, and uh, you know show in the studies. He said it does not improve general reading comprehension to have a content knowledge um, curriculum. What are your thoughts about what Nate's article said? So I have a lot of thoughts in general. So one thing that you said initially, um, I know we're going to talk about Nate, but you said, Natalie Wexler says, does it make sense? That sounded a little bit like FMP. Does it make sense? But anyway, <laughs> so thoughts on Nate. So I think it's actually really interesting because I think there's so many things that are crucial to think about. When we say knowledge building, there are so many topics out there that we can talk about with students. I think it's really important to think about how do we determine what is really important? Um, do we talk about panda bears? Do we talk about dinosaurs? Are we talking about um, all the continents? How do we determine what knowledge is really going to help kids? Because a lot of those tests 
um, that kids take, a lot of that content is very unfamiliar to kids. Another problem is that a lot of kids that are taking that test sit there for three hours, four hours, five hours, and they can't even read it. Well, that's a different story altogether. But it's a big part of the story. Of course. So in general, my thoughts are, Nate said a lot of things. I think he said that teaching skills had a, a value. Is that correct, Faith? So you're talking about comprehension skill. Yeah. Yes. yes. And so, yes, that was in the meta-analysis that and there that, is right. a benefit to teaching some comprehension skills. And as Leslie's going to tell us, teaching comprehension skills well is the key. Perhaps hasn't key. been done well up until this point. And that's, that's the biggest point that, you know, really resonated with me because I feel like on social media, all these articles we're reading, there's so many mixed messages. Teachers, now we know phonics is a priority. We know decoding skills has been neglected. And Emily Hanford brought that to light, right? Now we're being told one person says this, do this, do this. You know, we were teaching well, some skill teaching. That's, before, that's right? exactly what we want to discuss tonight. Good, good, we're good, getting good. information from different sources And I think the average teacher is left trying to figure this out. Administrators are going to start buying new programs. We want to make sure they're making good decisions. So, Leslie, could you speak now about what some of your research is and what um, your view is on comprehension in terms of building it? I think the three of us are very connected to schools. We're in schools all the time. We are, you know, eating lunch with teachers every day. We are teaching classes, modeling lessons, and we're really, really in the trenches. For us and for the people we're working with, these dichotomies and these um, splits don't resonate and don't make sense. We know that kids need both. Mm-hmm. We know that we need to be building knowledge. Of course, it's it's so fun. Um, we need to do that. And we need to empower kids with agency and strategies and empower the teachers too. When the teachers learn really effective strategies and use them with kids, they're so excited. They see the kids be able to use these strategies. So I just want to back up and say, the knowledge, the the research base behind teaching knowledge is weak. There is a link that we can share with you at the end to a spreadsheet that lists out the various research studies. The biggest was done by um, Garrard, 2017. Thousands of children, hundreds of teachers in the UK, and it actually it it foregrounded teaching knowledge. The outcomes. It was long term. I think a year or two. The outcomes were negative. Mm-hmm. There was actually a loss. The other studies that have tried, like Connor, they've gotten no outcomes. The highest that I've seen um, from Sonia Cabell was 0.09 for vocabulary. Wow. And to, to her credit, she's told me again and again, you have to be really careful with effect sizes, but still it's a 0.09. Um, and the others are negative. So foregrounding the teaching of knowledge can be harmful and can result in very small effect sizes. Now flip over and look at the work of Nell Duke 
and Pearson and all of the reading strategies people, Vaughn and Wanzek. Mm-hmm. Wanzek's 2017 study had an effect size of 0.38, which is four times that of teaching knowledge. So when you look at the strategy research, you really can move the dial on something. Now, to Wexler, to Natalie Wexler's good point, we don't know quite what that is. It's not knowledge, but it is an ability to attack a text more strategically and to therefore extract more meaning from it. Kids can do that and they can get better at it. And the research shows that when they are taught how to do that, they will read better any text. But when we push the knowledge, we're not seeing any gains. Now, we should do both. (laughs) Right, right. So I'm going to go back to the article, Natalie's article. And Natalie um, had written, and in with this, I think she makes a a very good point, where she said um, that knowledge building, the approach, it's, it's not easy to get evidence for it, because the process takes so long, right? And so you're not going to see it in the first two years where most times when there's a study done, that's what they're looking at, that this is cumulative and you start to see this over time. So Judy, you know, you and I um, tutor kids, we work with kids, we're in the schools, we coach. So, you know, I could tell you that this makes a lot of sense to me because when I do um, work with kids, sometimes it doesn't translate to a standardized test. When kids are so far behind, I could be making progress with a child, but it's not going to show up in a standardized test because they're so far behind that it just we we still have so much work to do. So that logic of it not showing up right away makes sense to me. Your thoughts, Judy, on that point? So I totally agree with you as well. But I think like for the average school teacher or for the average coach, it's currently extremely, extremely overwhelming to have to deal with all these pillars and make sure that they're all being taught correctly. Everybody's stressed out. You know, many people are focusing so much on phonics and so forth, but phonics is only a piece of the pie. We know that, right? We know comprehension is a critical piece, but unfortunately, it's really tough for a long time. Now we're making sure that reading is getting done, but we're cutting things like science and we're cutting things like social studies or they only have science once a week or maybe not at all. Well, that's actually what Natalie was saying in the article, that we don't really have a large chunk of time in social studies and science because we spend a lot of time in reading instruction that she's thinking that maybe some of that should be spent building that knowledge. But what my question to you was the idea of not really seeing gains on a standardized test because what you're doing, it might not reflect Um, what you're doing. That's what I was asking. Do you ever do that when you work with kids and you know they're making gains, but it's not going to show up at that moment in time because they're not there yet? Well, of course. Well, one of the problems is A, a lot of kids can't read. We have a literacy crisis in this country. So that's the biggest problem right now. Kids see the passage and probably like, I I can't name a number because I'm I'm not a math person. I'm not a math person. 
However, there's so many kids that are sitting there and can't do it. Um, and then the other part is that, you know, a lot of a lot of teachers are working on test prep right now, right? They're showing kids how to annotate. They're showing kids how to underline. Mm. Is that important? Is that not important? Are we doing it right? Are we not doing it right? Then there was FNP. We were doing, you know, FNP is kind of like going this way right now. But, you know, there were some strategy building their text to self connections, text to world connections. Let's do an inference. Let's make a connection. Bottom line is, what's the right approach? Okay, Leslie, jump in right now, because I saw you writing something down. So I know that you're thinking about what (laughs) you said. So um, Um, what what is your um, thought about when Natalie says that perhaps this is incremental academic progress and it might not show up um, where you're not going to see those gains the way you would expect? What are your thoughts on that? I agree with her fully. I think she's a gem to our field because she's bringing something to light that I wish Mm. had been known 20 years ago, 30 when I began. She's absolutely spot on that the knowledge is so incredibly important. We were doing all of this writing from head. Writing is the area I think about, but, you know, reading Goosebumps, you know, I mean, they're wonderful books for recess time and for home, but we need to be building knowledge without a doubt. And, And thank goodness that our field has her and that she has brought this to light. But like anyone, we all have our, um, we're, it's a big elephant and we're all touching it from different places. And I so appreciate what she has illuminated and there are further pieces. Um, she's right. Background knowledge will grow slowly. It's important. We need to be doing it. The strategies are fast. So it's an and both. And when we teach the strategies, And I want to bring it in a self-regulated way when we're actively teaching children how to self-regulate how they use the strategies and we're not picking from a hat and using them badly and using poor weak, like here's how you underline. That's not a strategy. A strategy might be learning how to use who did what, when, where to find the gist. The latest version of the IES practice guides um, is on reading interventions, grade four through nine. Four nine. I love that. I think Maybe we should of, put that into. That would be a great input. But yeah. one of the first strategies there is a how to find the gist, and it's got the strongest level of evidence. Yes. And I'm hearing it left and right from all my teachers when they teach the kids how to find the gist. They're reading in a different way, and they do it 10 words on my fingers. Um, and it's a quick thing. So I think the strategies are really fast. We will see a bump. We can do it. It's so empowering because we do see the gains right away. The Cumberland Public Schools in Rhode Island went from 40 to 80% proficient. Wow. It went up 30%. Yeah. New York City Benson School went from 30% proficient to 77 after using these strategies. Um, That's why New York City is trying to roll out self-regulated strategy development all over the city because they saw these gains in the pilot schools. So strategies are fast. Background knowledge is slow. (laughs) (laughs) So I I have a book on just about everything. (laughs) As I was talking to Leslie before. So I'm a big believer in all of these types of strategies Strategies done well. I do this with my students. I do summarizing strategies. I I think it's important that we don't just um, throw this important part of learning 
out the window and think that just alone putting in um, content is going to do it. I do think strategies taught well um, are so important. Um, I want to just jump in a second. What are your thoughts about children's literature? We keep talking about nonfiction. Right. And I could tell you years ago when I worked in the city, I was trained as a great books leader, which um, is all about shared inquiry and asking questions and teaching kids to question the text and have conversations around real good children's books. And we're not having a conversation about literature anymore. What are your thoughts? And then I would love to hear from Judy also what's happening in the city schools. Did we get rid of literature? What are your thoughts? Um, Like you, just like you, I've wondered where has that gone in the conversation? It's it's so important. Um, I have read research studies that children who read literature um, tend to set higher goals when they're reading literature with people that they admire. Um, but yeah, it's it's a beautiful, uplifting experience for children. It's what hooks them in and makes them readers. And when they become readers, they become they develop that Velcro where mm-hmm. it's like a snowball effect and they're picking up language and vocabulary because they're hooked into a book. You don't get as hooked into informational text the way you do literature. So it, it yeah. I'm some worried about do. it. You know, it depends. Maybe some do. Some, some you're do. Absolutely and right. as they get older, I think for sure they do. But yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Judy, what are your thoughts about children's literature? Are you seeing that, um, you know, put to the side in favor of more nonfiction and um, not really seeing literature anymore? So as you all know, I work for uh, the city schools, but all views are my own. So generally what I'm seeing even outside of work when I'm working with kids and so forth, I'm definitely seeing that a lot of attention is on nonfiction pieces. Um, Also, so we just started the universal screeners and those topics you know, kids are supposed to retell and so forth. The topics were like written, it seems like a really long time ago. I think the screeners are very effective at seeing if a kid can read very quickly with the oral reading fluency. However, a lot of those passages are really unfamiliar to kids. And, I, and I'm just curious, if it was like an art, article about Roblox or Minecraft, would that shift the needle and would more kids be able to like push through? Because quite frankly, when kids are reading right now, they're having a really hard time because I think a lot of schools are transitioning. Um, they're they're really pushing kids to read more decodable texts and so forth. And it's always a numbers game in schools. Do we have time well, for decodable this? books for decodable books while they're learning to read? While they're learning to read, but the problem is time. Do we still have time for the other things? So many kids are struggling. So it's like you have to think about. Do we have this? Do we have that? Do we have the read aloud? Do we have shared reading? Do we do small group? I think it's everybody's heart right now, I think is in the right place. But I, and I've been saying this episode after episode, I think it has to come more solution-based right now, because I think we know that there's a problem. We know storytelling is great, right? We all love to do those great read alouds. I don't know if schools are prioritizing that right now, because I think the big push is to get kids to decode better right now, because 
It's a crisis. Kids cannot decode well. A lot of kids, okay. not all so kids. Now that's that's very interesting. So, you know, I'm going. You know, I'm going to stop you right there because obviously we know that reading rope is supposed right. to be covering two domains, right? Word recognition and language comprehension. Yeah. Leslie, what do you say to what Judy is noticing? Do you agree that perhaps we're not spending enough time on read alouds or um, language building? Uh, and we're mo- more focused now on just getting kids to decode. Is that what you're seeing? I mean, I'm I'm wondering when you go into schools. Oh, yeah. I think that language listening comprehension. So we have the simple view of reading um, for people watching. I'm sure you're all familiar, but the simple view of reading is um, word recognition and listening comprehension or basically decoding, crack the code, and then higher order thinking and language. Those two sides. And crack the code is in the spotlight right now. Like People are aware that we need phonics and and that has grown. And science of reading is being connected with phonics. Mm-hmm. But all of us in who've been carrying this torch for 30 years, like I have, I was Orton Gillingham at, back in the 90s. Um, we're all saying, wait, stop the train. This is also the higher order. But the higher order is a slipperier pig. You see, um, you see growth in it much more slowly than you do with phonics. You learn how to teach phonics and you're like, whoa, I got that kid reading. She can crack the code now. But with the listening comp, it's much slower, but we can do it. We have a causal evidence bank, Mm -hmm. but unfortunately we are slipping into um, theory and correlational um, Mm -hmm. all through Natalie Wexler's piece, she's citing correlational studies. Now, she did cite one that was empirical, which is a step forward, which is good. But I think a lot of people are looking at correlational theoretical on um, studies on what contributes to listening comprehension. And we really need to be looking at the empirical. And when we look at the cause effect, This is a really important question for people to ask. Was the study correlational? Did it just show which things match up? Or did somebody go in and do something in a school and measure the outcome? That is the research that we need. Mm -hmm. And when we look at that for listening comprehension, there are really powerful things we can do in a read aloud to structure and scaffold that building of that slippery or pig. And we can measure it. We can measure it through writing. When yeah. we collect a writing sample from kids, we can see where their language and listening comp is at. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. And I do the same thing as I'm working with kids. Mm-hmm. I really look at the writing samples as well. So I'm going to go to what Nate said. Mm-hmm. Um, in his meta-analysis, he suggested that there is no transfer effect um, to background knowledge instruction. Um you know, or at least very little. I, I maybe um, no transfer effect is a little bit too strong, but very little transfer effect. And Natalie Wexler brought this up in her article about um, near transfer, far transfer. And, um, you know, I think people looking at that article um, might be confused by what all of that actually means between near, far transfer. The issue is we as teachers just want to know <laughs> what to do. 
what to do. I think that that's the bottom line. We just want to know what to do. So what is your formula based on all I can share that. Yes, I'd like to hear it. Again, we're all touching the elephant from different places. Natalie Wexler is very theoretical. She has given us a gift in illuminating this, um, the importance of background knowledge. Um, The research doesn't bear out that building that will move ELA scores, as you're saying. Maybe it takes years and years. We don't know yet, but we don't have a research base yet to support that bringing on knowledge. But what can we do? We do know a lot. There's something called the science of reading, and it, as we all know, and it's not only phonics. There is a lot of research on what works in the comprehension field, and I'm surprised that there um, that that is not being illuminated more so as well. So, what can we do in the science of reading? I think the first thing we all need to do is we must be educated consumers, like an FDA. Like we need to ask, does this pill actually work? Did it work for your aunt or somebody you know out in Colorado, or does it, it has it been through the FDA and does it really work? Because we have that with what works, and we have that with our research world. In quick summary, what does the research say works? Gist statements are really powerful. Teaching kids to use organizers to understand what they've read and before they write both. Those are reciprocal processes. They are the same area of the brain. Um, Using organizers that look at text structure. We know that starting from the structure of the text is the best way entry to understanding what that text says. Then you go in at the sentence level, then you can start pulling out the vocab and what that means. But the research, if you look at any studies, starting by pulling apart text structure, now very quickly, you have to do syntax, you have to do vocab, they all have to work together. But text structure is our golden baby. Mm-hmm. So just statements, text structure, then how to parse syntax. We don't have any isolated studies mm-hmm. on pulling apart sentences, but um, Sharon Vaughn, who studies this really well, integrates it in with what she's doing. Vocab, I do believe teaching vocab, we have some good stuff. Um, but we have stuff. This is not an I don't know. Natalie Wexler is putting a theory out there. It's very interesting. We need to think about it. We need to cover all our bases and teach knowledge. But there is no evidence to suggest that that will raise ELA outcomes. And maybe it will raise them in 10 years. Maybe. But that's a maybe. And we don't have the answer. But we do have the answer for strategies. When taught well. Now, another thank you to Natalie Wexler, because she has pointed out that strategies can be taught poorly. And that we totally agree with. And that needs to be extinguished. Mm-hmm. And we need to start teaching them in a self-regulated way and the ones that have been validated. So you say self-regulated. I think um, that needs to be clarified. Are you talking about metacognition, thinking about your thinking? Are you talking about being able to question as you read? Just for the viewers, I think that's a um, you know a term of art. How about that? that might not be clear to the average listener. You're revealing all of your depth and expertise in this area when you use all of those phrases. And I hope that our listeners are familiar. And if they're not, if you can put some links so that they can learn more about everything you're saying. Um, As an entry point, the most basic level to get started with self-regulation, I think is using self-talk to guide yourself, 
that is like the curb cut in and start with just positivity. I can do this. I can I can read this book. My kids would say complex text, you're going down because they would go in with confidence. And then you metacognitively but I don't that that's a high level term on a very concrete level. I am then going to write BWA on my paper before I read, while I read, after I read. And those are going to remind me that before I read, I should activate what I already know. I should try to put together a gist statement based on the title and a quick skim. While I read, I should box and underline. Don't just teach kids how to box and underline because they won't pick it up and use it independently. But if you teach them to write BWA and to cue themselves and then follow those steps and check them off as they do each, then I see them on those state assessments, pull out their pen, write BWA and start marking up that text because they're in charge and they're guiding themselves. Judy, um, are there any um, uh, people in the city right now doing any of these strategies because um, Leslie has been doing work in New York City. She brought some of these self-regulation type strategies into the city, but the city is a big place. So I'm wondering if um, you've seen any of this in action. I definitely see a big shift in New York City. So universal literacy was a great focus on K-2. However, um, right now, the attention has been made to go from K-12. to so there's coaching in the higher levels, lower levels, and there's definitely, 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 definitely more attention on comprehension, 100%. However, I think there's a learning curve for a lot of people. I think we've been teaching comprehension in many schools with a strategy approach, but we're not quite sure was that the right approach or not the right approach. I definitely see an increase in um, shared reading through a different lens, through a closed reading lens. So there's definitely shifts, but I don't know if it's exactly the same everywhere. You know, I just don't know yet. Things yeah. are just shifting. I, I feel a rapid shift. I feel a really rapid shift. I see principles that are just excited for all the new research coming out. Um, but I think there's definitely a learning curve. And I think that a lot of schools are now looking more intensely at what's the curriculum. You know, before I was, as I've said on many episodes, there's been the DYI, the do-it-yourself model. I don't see as many do-it-yourself models. I see a lot less of TC in schools. I see schools really looking at what's next. You know, I see HMH in some schools, some core knowledge, not that much. Some schools are EL. I think that it's a transition. But it's time, all but I, over the place. It's well, what you're saying yeah. is it's all over the place. And but I definitely, yeah. But, you know, it's interesting because, you know, we're still confused, right? We Now they're saying strategies are okay. I know Sarah Vallo came out with a new book on strategies. So just that word can look very different, right? So yes. we all now know that we want to follow an evidence-structured-based approach um, you know, but then here's Nate's bombshell. Faith, I called you right before the episode. You know, I wasn't feeling good today. I was at work. I was tired, but I, I had to pick up the phone and I said, oh my God, Nate just re revealed the bombshell. And I don't love looking at this kind of data. I'd rather look at Acadian's data and so forth. But here's his bombshell. Both meta-analysis showed no significant effect for vocabulary or background knowledge instruction on standardized tests. And I'm like, wait a minute, we're paying attention to all the five pillars, 
but we're not seeing the results. Once again, what is the solution? So Leslie has been kind enough to, you know, speak about some of those things, but I don't know if all those methods are very familiar to everybody. I'm sure a lot of people, I mean, she mentioned the Benson School, great. And I think that's my former district where I was a teacher back in the day in Brooklyn. However, I don't think that everybody is on the same page as to what the solution is. I think we all have it in our heart. We're not on the same page. That's clear. That is clear. But I think that's why we had um, invited Leslie on, because I think that, you know, we're getting a view that we should do um, a lot of content knowledge building. And I agree with that. And Leslie agreed with that. We all agree how important it is. But we can't just say, you know, strategies are not good. We have Right. So much evidence. And the evidence has been around for years. So I mean, why are we still this is not a new thing. It's not new. But Faith, why are we still struggling with it? I mean, I was trying to recovery in 2013 because they said this is the way to do it. Okay, How the hell some voices get heard more than others. That's why we're having Leslie on now, because maybe, you know, it's it's the way social media works. Certain voices get heard louder and clearer, and then everybody jumps on the bandwagon. And so I think it's really important to look at the research, look at what's happening here, hear from people who are in the field. That's the other issue. We need to hear from people in the field who actually do the work. And, um, you know, I'm going to bring this also back to Leslie now. Nate said that he looked at 501 studies on the topic, three meta-analyses, no compelling evidence for, um, you know, content knowledge instruction. And um, what you're saying is in line with what Nate said, basically, um, Leslie, that what he said in his article, I think, somewhat goes along with what you're saying too. But I don't think we hear a lot of that. What are your thoughts, Leslie? Um, I think that there's been this um, well-funded publisher-driven movement to get knowledge-based curriculum into the hands of schools. There's, you know, there's all kinds of agendas for that. Um, And they've gotten it in. And the schools are not seeing any gains. I've been tracking this since 2017, 18, when it first exploded. I won't mention the districts, but large districts were at the forefront keynoting, we got to build knowledge. And then I kept watching their scores and they were literally going down, down, down. And I think that the ball is beginning to drop that like, I mean, I know of one district that is highly held up as a model and their ELA scores went down. I'm not going to say the number mm-hmm. and they're, they're going down, 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 but could it also be, but could it be what Natalie Wexler is saying that some right. of these shifts take time? I, I just want to go back to her. Article. I agree. 
and, but we're not to and, both. Right. I not agree with that. We need because then we both. could see the gains and we could be building knowledge. But I people are trashing. And I will tell you from my experience, working under a very large federal grant to scale evidence-based practices, we worked with almost 50 schools this year. And um, just I'll, I'll tell you what I saw day after day meeting with superintendents and principals nearly every day from probably two or 300 schools. I will tell you what I was being told that was really alarming. Um, but back to a minute ago, the ELA scores are plummeting in the schools that I know of. I sat through a webinar through a large organization and they were featuring a school that had adopted a knowledge curriculum. And I quickly Googled them and saw their, their scores going down. Like we need to, before we promote a, we need to see that the response from this team is now change the test. Right. That was not being said three, four years ago. Three, yeah. four years ago, it was, oh, Ruhaha, let's get these knowledge-based kids will grow so yeah, much. The when time. they didn't, they suddenly said, change the test. If I don't like what my scale says, I can buy a new scale that will tell me that I weigh less, yeah. but but I need to actually face the fact that I thought something would work. So what's happening in the schools? This is the sad part, but I'm hopeful the pendulum will swing. You're holding this webinar. I was told in school after school, we were going to give them free, actually, they were going to get stipends. Um get paid to do this, um, to adopt evidence-based practices for literacy that are highly, highly validated. We had schools that had 40% gains and we were we had those superintendents on meeting with these people. School after school said, we're adopting a knowledge curriculum. It will be too heavy a lift. And I was like, horse and cart. How are you going to deliver that cart without a horse? You're going to saddle your teachers with all of this knowledge where they have to dig through tomes and tomes of books to learn all of this. And you're not giving them a horse to actually deliver it to the kids and help the kids take off and use it independently. That was literally the real world this year. It was either knowledge or strategies and everybody was going with knowledge. Mm -hmm. Do the tests... Um test for uh, comprehension skills. Natalie mentioned that in her article. Would you agree that a reading test um, actually tries to avoid knowledge, um, you know, and they want to see if kids are using reading um, skills? I don't, I don't think so, because the tests are reflective of zip code. Mm -hmm. And that's it. That's it. Kids in different zip codes are not applying skills. They simply have a stronger language base. Mm -hmm. But we have defied zip code. Again, if you Google School Digger Cumberland, Rhode Island, you will see they went from 40 to 80. None of the children changed. The teachers didn't change. They simply started using strategies and we flipped zip code on its head. Mm -hmm. Wow. So, no, I don't agree with Natalie Wexler that they are testing skills. I think they are reflective of the language. And what we did in the Cumberland schools was we lifted language. We were not giving them any hokey skills. That's not what they were using on the tests. Mm -hmm. We had lifted language and we had helped them become more self-regulated learners. Okay. And, you know, it's, it's interesting because um, there are people on Twitter, social media, and they are um, basically saying, many of them, I'm not going to mention names, right. um, that 
this is the way to go. And they point to states like Tennessee. They point to- Tennessee uh, rolled out SRSD statewide. That's what I wanted to ask you about. I worked with that. We brought it to 40,000 classrooms. We did. I worked with the state leaders and 200 coaches, and we brought SRSD to every classroom in, in Tennessee. They're not using knowledge curriculum across most of that state. That's not what you would believe if you followed Twitter. Wow. You follow Twitter. Yeah. It seems like the way Tennessee boosted their scores is by obviously bringing phonics in. That was yeah, a, that, that they did because I was I was involved yes. in the whole um, yes. movement yes. from 2012 where they were um, t- score Tennessee or something. And they were getting they got the largest federal grant and they brought me down to roll it out to roll out self-regulated strategy development to 40,000 classrooms. And we did. And while I was there, the room next to me was like, um, who's the letters? The letters leader. Moats. Thank you. Um, I think she was involved. There were a lot of phonics gurus and you could not even say certain names from the literature that were not phonics people. Like they were very clear. I was so proud of them that they were very clear that we all need phonics in every classroom, but they also needed evidence-based practices. Mm -hmm. And they were bringing in all of evidence-based. I didn't see knowledge curriculum anywhere. Okay. Well, I could tell you um, definitely Without a doubt, the success to something else. Correct. Correct. That is exactly. And um, I could tell you that um, they they make it sound like by bringing in content knowledge curriculum, that that's why Tennessee is going way up and other states as well. They're speaking out of two sides of their mouth. They're saying, well, change the test because this won't impact the test. But then they're saying tests went up. It must have been knowledge. That's interesting. I even heard, I don't know where I heard this. I heard a rumor that um, short responses are going to be the way to go without the extended response. Is that true? Or was I like dreaming and I seem (laughs) to having a nightmare? More and more tests are doing that. Um, I like the idea of using writing to capture learning. Of course. Of course. But if you get rid of it, it's like a Band-Aid, right? You're putting on a Band-Aid again. I think another thing that we haven't really mentioned is, so a lot of the parents in the suburbs, I know their kids opt out of the test. Mm -hmm. I don't know if we see that as much in city schools. I don't think, you know, some of the parents might not know. Some of the parents might not care. Some parents might think it's mandated. Do you think that that also plays a role in what the data is telling us and so forth? I know it's big in New York. I've seen a huge number of opt-outs outs, but in I'm in Massachusetts. Really? I see almost none in my state. So I no, see lot, I see a lot and, in and again, Westchester. There's a lot of apt out, but you know, it, it's hard because, you know, so definitely not because they reflect zip code. Right. And the so. fact that they're reflecting zip code shows that they really are. And, and we can change zip code by implementing very rigorous strategies. That's really, that, that's good. Because that's ho- that's, that's important to hear because, you know, unfortunately, you know, a lot of the kids that I work with during the day, there's a lot of kids that live in shelters, transitional housing and so forth. Maybe some of those students have never been to a beach. Maybe they've never, you know, maybe they have, maybe they haven't, maybe they've been to a museum, maybe they haven't. How do we level off the playing field? And Well, that's what Natalie Wexler actually is saying that, um, you know, I'm just going to pivot yeah, for a yeah, second. Yeah. 
That's exactly what she's saying. Because kids have not had those experiences, they're at a disadvantage. And that's why a content knowledge curriculum is so important because it's supposed to build schema at the youngest right. ages. That word I've heard but- so much. If I may <laughs> just say one schema, schema. I've heard that one a million and one, one times. Go one ahead. thing I just said is they are supposed to. And that is where there are two sides to Natalie Wexler. She has illuminated something important, but then she needs to recognize where she doesn't have the expertise. And that is in the empirical. When she says supposed to, and she has her theory change the test and a theory knowledge should build ELA. Well, the theory didn't turn out to be right so far from what we can see. The empirical research and the schools have not supported it. Let's do it because we believe in it. And maybe there's a 10-year gain. So let's keep doing it because why not put our eggs in all baskets and and make sure we've covered all bases. Um, but the theories of change the test, maybe 10 years from now that will happen. But for right now, if we want our children to succeed in the real world on the tests that are in front of them, then we need to be using strategies that are best promise. And I think we come to a nice place of both. And Natalie Wexler's thrown out a beautiful theory. Why not address it? Maybe it's true. Maybe it's not. We don't know. But we do know that strategies work. So those should be a definite. Right. But what strategies are we using as key? And I think you mentioned some, but I, you know, that works. Let me jump in a second. Um, Nate actually listed some of them in this article. He said in the early grades, vocabulary instruction um, showed the most benefits. And in the later grades, strategy instruction. Can I say something about that? Yes, yes, go ahead. So that resonates so deeply because I was just, as I shared with you, I was working under a federal grant and we were rolling out evidence-based practices K through five. K2, we were really focused on the vocabulary and knowledge building, but underlying language building. But vocabulary is what we kept pushing K2. Three to five is when we, where we were really pushing the strategies. And I had not broken it down and thought of it that way, but that's what we were following the evidence base and that's what we were seeing. So that resonates with me so deeply that K to two, you can model collaborative reading, collaborative writing. You can build a word box and fill that in with your kids and have them turn and talk and use the words. By the time they hit second, third grade, you then hand them the strategies and tell them, now go build an organizer, build a language box, populate it with the words from the book you're reading. They can take off with the strategies at that slightly older age. Younger age, fill them with vocab. Yep. I love that. And then he also said for struggling readers, reciprocal teaching, Mm -hmm. graphic organizers, and vocabulary instruction for the struggling reader. Right. All right. Because if you could read, then you're getting your vocabulary because you're a reader. But for the struggling reader, you need to be a little bit more direct in the instruction for vocabulary. So what he's saying in his research certainly aligns with what the three of us are seeing, I think. Um, And, but I do think what Natalie Wexler's 
work does, as you said, it illuminates the idea that we should be paying attention to building knowledge. But I think we we agree, at least, mm-hmm. that just having a curriculum that's content knowledge instruction is not going to do it for a lot right. of kids. The strategies are what deliver. I think I'm quoting Susan Smart. They, the strategies are what deliver the content to the children. What are we going to do? Push knowledge down their throats? We need a strategy to deliver it. And knowledge is growing exponentially. We have no hope that we can actually teach a drop of knowledge that will impact the amount of knowledge that is knowledge is doubling every day. Children need to know how to learn. Sure, we can give them a drop of knowledge and we're all going to argue over what that knowledge should be. Should it be division? Should it be the civil war and what really happened? Right, right. how do you determine knowledge? But if we teach them how to learn and give them those drops of knowledge and that will have to be figured out with the states and districts, but the knowledge we can give them is one one thousandth of the knowledge that they're going to need. And people say, oh, you know, my husband studied stats and then he read an article on stats and he understood it better. Yeah, well, are we going to fill children with every bit of knowledge and then they'll go out in the world and... Yeah, they need to well, learn yeah that's to interesting. Learn. That's very interesting. You know, you make a very good point, Leslie. How do we determine? We're never going to be able to cover every topic. We'll never we agree. I yeah. definitely think that kids definitely need an explicit model on how to do things. That's part of the science of reading. And they need you knowledge. don't know how to just do it through the power of osmosis. There's a model. There's a think aloud. This is how I'm problem solving. This is what I'm doing. This is how I'm doing it. This is why I'm doing it. This is how it can help you. And, you know, things only become automatic if we let kids have that repetitive practice. It's almost like repetitive practice. That's what we taught in our study this year. We call them power cycles. And it's where you model and then you model with a little release. Then you model. Exactly. And then the kids do it. But you're going through a cycle where you're using the reading strategies and the writing. And then you're scoring and reflecting. Takes about two weeks. Then they do it again with a little less teacher guidance. And we have these two-week strategy application and reflection cycles. And we saw that the more that the teachers were fitting in, like robbing Peter to pay Paul to find the time. I, I I absolutely hear you, Judy, on the time. But the more power cycles the kids were going through, the faster they were becoming independent with then applying the strategies right. on their own and becoming Everything self-practice. Is it's, it's like a gradual practice and repetition. Yeah, it's That's like a gradual release process, right? Taking them through it over and over. Release. But it's so like, fun if you stick with it and do it because right. then but the problem is I'm not, the publishers aren't making any money off of this. So, you know, they're not promoting the idea that strategies are really what it's all about. We do need good high quality instructional materials. Oh my goodness. We absolutely need them. But again, they are the cart. The horse is the instruction and the strategy. 100% right. It's just like riding a bike. You're not going to, you know, my father taught me how to ride a bike. He held the back of the bike for a couple of weeks. And then all of a sudden, you know, I remember when I was seven years old. And then finally, after repeated practice, he was able to do it. I remember the day I showed my dad how I could ride my bike. Or swimming. 
You're not going to throw a baby in the pool and say, just go swim. You're going to show the baby how to swim. You're not signing the baby up for, or the three-year-old or the five-year-old up for one lesson. You know, you need at least six. And you're not going to take a bucket and pour it down the child's mouth and say, take all this knowledge. You're going to give them a, a cup and a way to take some water and then digest it, you know, because the kids need to learn how to find their own knowledge and take it in so that they can become self-propelling. In finding, and every time they don't know something about enough about a topic, they know how to learn about that topic. So at the end of Natalie Wexler's article, she finishes it off by saying, and for those educators who have made the switch to a knowledge building curriculum, the more study, this was the study she referenced in the article that talked about, you know, transferring um, the transfer from content building at the beginning to long term gains um, that you see over time. The more study should provide reassurance that they're on the right track, even if they're not yet seeing results on standardized no. reading tests. No, I could not disagree more strongly. And it's, I don't know how responsible it is to write and publish something like that, because now schools are going to adopt this knowledge building without, with rejecting the strategies and the strategies are what are going to move the children. I worked in the Worcester public schools. We began K-6, then the middle school picked up the strategies, then the high school. Last year, they graduated more children who had been through 12 years of SRSD who went first generation were accepted to the Ivy Leagues, Yale, Dartmouth, but they had 12 years of strategy instruction. There was never a knowledge building curriculum in there. We have no evidence to make a statement like that. You can be reassured even if we're not seeing gains. Okay. Let's give you that. Maybe we're not seeing gains, but where is your evidence that we will see gains in another area? Mm -hmm. And we have evidence for right now. And we have evidence on on strategy instruction. First generation, getting into the Ivy Leagues after 12 years of strategies. I was a little surprised to see that that's how the article ended. Because like I said, there's a lot I agree with. With you know, with what she says, I agree. Um, but that statement, um, I was a little surprised about because, um, to just basically say it's almost like saying, Well, trust us, it's going to show up. I'm sorry, I don't mean to be using that, but it is sort of like balanced literacy. Oh, don't worry, it'll work. It'll work. That was my might not see, and I know she might not be reading. be perceived that way. I know it. But when I read that, that statement was like, you know, teachers for a long time now have been told things. To take things on faith. No, ask to see a model school, ask to see a research study. And and if I may just throw in something like totally opposite to everything we're saying, like, where are the model schools? Mm-hmm. They're out there, but I, I, I want to go there. Can somebody take me on a trip to the best schools on planet? <laughs> I know, because road trip. like I'm phonics core, but I want to see a school that is taken on phonics and then seen gains. And then I can go visit that school. And um, there's something in phonics that where it hasn't met its promise yet. It will. 
It but will. It will. I think we need to partner it with an equal emphasis on listening, comprehension, and strategies. And then I think we'll see more of the promise. I do see that in my schools. Mm-hmm. When I come in and I bring SRSD and I'm going into an Orton Gillingham school, it takes faster and the gains are higher and stronger. But well, so far, we're in the science of reading world pulling up research studies. But where are our schools? Mm-hmm. Well, I am. Uh, I do think the place to start is phonics. I do. I think I do. that is the that. foundation. Without a doubt. Without and a doubt. So I don't want to leave people up. thinking that, you know, that's not so you important. Can't leave people it's not that that's, you can't. Yeah. You can't because you, you can't. You got to say the gateway is not phonics and you say it's something like everybody's watching. Everybody's thinking about literacy. Everybody wants to do the and right. I'm thing. not saying it's not phonics, but I am raising an important question. Definitely. It's phonics and what? And how are our schools, our schools, and a how? lot of schools have switched over and are doing phonics and we're not seeing the gains yet. So what is that missing piece that we need in addition yeah. to the phonics? And and I do think that we need to have those core strategies that we know work in addition to having way more social studies and science built into the school day. So I, you know, I'm in agreement with you. What last point before we start kind of wrapping up, it says here in um, the article and Natalie's article that um, Daniel Willingham uh, said that uh, the tests are basically knowledge tests in disguise. What is your thought about that? I think Willingham, Daniel Willingham, um, has raised an important puzzle. And it's not one that I've figured out yet. He's raised a question, but I don't think building knowledge shows any promise of being the answer. Um, It is a very interesting question, but back to feet on the ground in schools every day, what is working? What research do we have that really will move these schools I don't think he has a viable solution by saying that teaching 10 lessons on strategies is enough. Fine. But then the kids need to be coached through practicing them over and over and over and over. And he doesn't acknowledge that. He says, you know, teach 10 and then what move on? Like you need to teach 10, but then you need to practice them all year long in a guided release model. Mm -hmm. So he's raising this question about, is it just a, a knowledge test in disguise? I I don't think so, because I know in the Cumberland schools and in the research that I've looked at um, that we can move the needle. Wanzek moved the needle. She had a 0.38 effect size four times. That's pretty big. Yes. And she wasn't teaching knowledge. So I don't think it is a knowledge test in disguise, but he does raise interesting questions. Well, I do think, and, and I think both of you would agree, kids um, who are born into homes where it's, you know, they're from college educated parents, where there's a lot of, um, you know, talk, a lot of vocabulary, a lot of experiences. They do do better on these tests. Can't deny that, that having, um, you know, growing up in a home where that's nurtured will benefit those kids. Oh, will benefit, but we can still move the needle. I was in Pawtucket. They had 22% proficient. We got them up to 47. We didn't do anything to the home life. We didn't, we, we just taught more strategies. 
I think strategies are under acknowledged in terms of how much they can move that because we can't change the home life very much. We can have a home program. I I don't know how successful they've been, but we can change how we teach. It also comes down, though, that a lot of those kids um, that have those experiences where they're going to museums and and so forth, a lot of those parents also have money to tutor their kids after school. Maybe that's having an effect. I don't know. Yeah, that too. I think there's there's an effect with the tutoring more for phonics than it is in in that area, because, you know, it is. Knowledge is incremental. It builds slowly over time. I don't know how you can really get that through tutoring sessions. I, uh, I, well, the quicker you learn how to lift the words off the page, the quicker you can start. So that's what I'm it. saying. That's right. what I'm saying. In that particular area, I think there's probably more work that tutoring could do. But the idea of knowledge building and vocabulary building, I think that's home life. That is more about those kids growing up saturated in that kind of environment. But what we're saying is, what can the schools do right. to get the home life? What, where teachers, and both, where I'm sure we all began this conversation, right. that, you know, where we wind up is it's and both. The strategies will have a powerful and monumental and quick impact. And then after that, we continue layering in the knowledge and continued nuanced use of the strategies. And I do believe we can hit 95. Cumberland's already at 80. Mm -hmm. And I think they're going to go higher and higher. And they started at 40. Wow. I do think we can get close to that. And maybe knowledge is like icing on the cake, like a piece that will continue to move it at a smaller rate, but it can give us those extra percents each year. All right. So let's wrap up, ladies. So um, any last thoughts that we did not cover um, that you would like to add? Anybody? I'll give a last thought. So first, I want to thank Nate the Great. Um, (laughs) He doesn't care what team you're on. He doesn't care if you're balanced literacy or if you're structured literacy. He's going to tell you the truth. He's looking at those mathematical data pieces. And I really appreciate that because me as a person that's in the field, coaching, teaching, I don't want to do that work. I like to look at Acadian's data and so forth. So thank you to Nate. I also want to thank Leslie tremendously for telling me that there is hope that, you know, even the kids that are having a hard time and don't have a great home life and so forth, that there's hope because, you know, there's so much happening in education right now that I think that all the people that are watching this, we all want to learn. But, you know, just thinking about strategies, that might not look the same, right? The ones that are effective are the ones that we need to start prioritizing. So I can't wait as an educator to prioritize that and for everybody to kind of be on the same page because it can't be that down the block here, so I'm doing this, this is going on here. There has to be a way to do better. There has to be, but thank you for giving us hope. And I also want to chime in and say thank you, Dr. Leslie Laud, for being with us. And um, I hope that people will check out your website on um, think, S-R-S-D, is it .org? .com. .com. 
Com. And we'll put that in the show notes because I do think that, um, you know, people need to learn a little bit more about what's going on in strategy instruction, especially since the research um, really supports having those strategies in the classroom. And I'm so glad we had this conversation. And I do want to thank Natalie Wexler for the work that she does as well. And that um, I think the you know journalists do bring an important piece to um, this discussion, mm-hmm. and uh, it does it illuminates what we need to look at. But I do think the people in the field need to be heard more, and I'm glad we were able to bring you on. So thank you so much, and thank you for everyone for listening. And please follow us. It's the Literacy View. We have a Facebook page. We are, um, what else? You're you're always the one who does this. All right, so I wrote it down. Follow us on Facebook, the Literacy (laughs) View, Real Teachers Letting Loose. Follow us on YouTube, the Literacy View. We're also on all the podcasts, the Literacy View. Also follow my beautiful Faith on Twitter at Faith Borkowski. Follow me at Boxner Judy. And follow Leslie, Natalie, Nate. These discussions <laughs> are the best thing ever. We are called The View for a reason. We don't all have to agree, but these conversations are what's going to push the work forward. Yes, that is it. All right. So long, everyone. Thank you so much. Thank Bye. you so much. Truly transformational. You've changed my mind and made me think about things I hadn't thought about. And you're making me see things differently. And it's always a joy to learn and grow. So thank you. Thank you. Then we're doing our job. Thank you. (laughs) Have a great evening. You too. Bye-bye.